Hello and welcome to The Curator of Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco 24, with highlights from our studios here in Midori House and from around the world. This week we'll hear from the director of Daniel Craig's last Bond film. As the day kind of went on, and we're getting closer and closer to that final take, um, watching the crew members around me just breaking into tears especially those around Daniel. Plus, we will have smarter traffic in the future, and we can then avoid, through intelligence, crowd intelligence, artificial intelligence, uh, unnecessary traffic jams. The head of Daimler and Mercedes-Benz looks to the future. All that and much, much more here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And this week we saw the highly anticipated release of the new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, which has been pushed back by over a year due to the pandemic. This is the 25th Bond film and marks the final appearance of Daniel Craig as 007. On this week's Monocon Culture, I had the pleasure to speak with the film's director, Kerry Joji Fukunaga. I began by asking him how he brought James Bond to a more modern audience. It was definitely impossible to ignore the Me Too element that we'd been living with when we wrote this screenplay. There's no way to not sort of address the fact that the world is changing, the office place is changing, the dynamics everywhere are changing, and it's, you know, about time. So that is definitely a part of the story, but like we also were aware you just, you can't be reactionary. You can't act like, you know, a corporation might, you know, put a, you know, a stamp on something, acting like you're doing something that has to be sort of like tangible within the context of the story and has to make sense and it has to feel like it's real uh, and uh, taken seriously. And I think part of that, you know, Barbara Broccoli is one of the most or the most successful female producer. And um, from the 90s, when Judy Dench was brought in to play M, there was a change already taking place with the character where she calls out the misogyny in that film. So. Daniel's run as Bond is, is, has continued that legacy of evolution. And I think bringing on female double O's and, and really fleshing out the female characters throughout the series, you know, Vesper Lind, I think was a very fleshed out character in the first film, has been the franchise's response to the changing world. And, and I was going to ask, you know, what's the most exciting part of directing a Bond movie? Because you're mentioning, of course, the, the more importance to female characters, but I believe even Daniel Craig, he portrayed more emotion as well. So I think it's not only about the, the big, exciting action scenes as well. There's, there's quite a lot of kind of emotionally depth to the character as well. But what was the most exciting parts of directing such a, you know, a large budget film like No Time to Die? Um, it was hard to kind of stop and take stock of the moment. I think we were definitely in it for most of the, the run of production because it was just time was, there was never any time. Uh, and, uh, as the title says, and, um, but, uh, I think some of the more exciting moments were when you, you got a second to sort of pinch yourself and, and realize, you know, what you were doing, whether it was when like the fancy cars came up or, you know, just, watching Daniel you know, as Bond do something that felt so quintessentially Bond. You know, in those moments, you're able to kind of appreciate it. But then obviously, all the weight of the, the things that were left to be done would come crashing back in. And then you're, you're back in work mode. And Kerry, was, was Bond something that you always wanted to do? Or was it a bit of surprise when you were kind of <laughs> invited to direct A No Time to Die? And I wonder what was your reaction as well? Uh, well, I had actually sought out uh, Barbara for a drink 
shortly after Spectre came out. And at that time, Daniel was saying that was his last bond. So in my mind, they're probably looking for somebody else and a restart. And so I just sort of raised my hand and said, you know, when you get to that point, I'd like to be considered. And then I sort of forgot about it. I went on to, to do another series and that became all engrossing. And when I had finished that series and was about to promote it is when uh, I read that Danny Boyle was dropping out. So again, I emailed Barbara and said, uh, what's going on here? Can I still be you know, considered for this role? And that led to a meeting at Barbara's uh, house in New York with Michael and Daniel and then then more meetings and more story meetings. Then, and suddenly I was doing the job. It was, uh, it was kind of... Um, a blur actually it happened so quickly well knowing a little bit of your work I'm, I'm very excited to see what you bring you know to, to no time to die and, and let's be honest here i mean some directors they direct in more than one bone movie i mean who knows i mean if you're invited for another one would you would you say yes <laughs> uh i would have to consider it you know i mean i've never really done the same thing twice so it's not so much for lack of passion or desire to to, to shepherd the character forward even further but it's more just you know with the limited time left that i have to make movies and television programs, I have to really be careful about what I choose because there is there is only so much time. You know, I felt one thing that I would like to ask, because of course I saw the documentary being James Bond, how emotional it was. Tell us about the environment in the set about that, because of course Daniel Craig last time, it was really emotional. It was, it was, it was that last day of shooting was definitely more emotional than I anticipated. I'm um, not someone that usually gets teary-eyed on set and uh, the way you could feel Almost the way when you go to a movie and you, you can feel the room, you know, in a movie, if people are happy, people are crying, it's a, it's a contagious emotion. And on set, it's very much, it was very much that feeling that day. You could feel, I remember getting out of the car and walking towards our, our Cuba streets, which is where we're doing our last day of shooting, and just feeling the weight of it. And then as the day kind of went on, then we're getting closer and closer to that final take, um, watching the crew members around me just breaking into tears and um especially those around daniel and then when we finally did our last take you know it, it was daniel walking by the camera and then walking away from camera with his back to us and we did a take maybe i did a second take and i was considering a third take even though it's a pretty basic thing there was nothing i needed him to do differently but i just couldn't bring myself to say cut and say that's it and then there we were we cut and everyone was waiting outside the doors for him to come back from the shot and i think he was even surprised. I think we were all surprised about what it, what it meant. And his words, you know, at the end there were really, um, were very touching. That was Carrie Joji Fukunaga, director of No Time to Die, speaking to me. You can hear the full interview. Just head to our website, monocle.com slash radio, and you'll be able to hear my interview with the producers of the film as well, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson. And staying with 007, it was only fair that I looked at the top bone tunes when I joined Tom Edwards for this week's Global Countdown. Let's have a listen. I've been expecting you, Mr. Pacheco. <laughs> uh, in case listeners, I mean, surely there can't be any who haven't got the hint. What is the chart on this week's Global Countdown, Fernando? It's very rare that I do a special one here, uh, Tom, but basically I decided to look at the top five, not best songs from Bond, I have to say, according to the American charts. I have to use, kind of, because I know this kind of lists cause controversy, you know, the Bond fans, they always have their favorites, because there are a lot of big names missing out. I mean, I'm not going to review because then otherwise you know that it's not going to be on the top five. And I know you're a fan as well. I'm, I'm a big fan of James Bond. I think, I think, Tom, I think I've watched all of them. All the 25 of them. I'm not surprised, Fernando, that you've watched them all. I've seen, I'm pretty sure, most of them. 
Probably not in the right order. I, I can imagine you doing a kind of marathon sesh and trying to view them all back to back. Exactly. I mean, one for you, another day, perhaps. If you live in the UK, to be honest, I mean, every weekend there's there's a Bond film on television. I mean, you wouldn't miss out, especially yeah. on ITV. International <laughs> listeners should check out ITV4. Exactly. Where apparently <laughs> that's all that they broadcast. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the tunes because there have been some absolute belters down the years. We're talking what fifty, sixty years almost. Uh, but we should start. This week's special Bond-themed countdown with the all-time US chart number five track. And that's one that I think most people would know. It's, of course, Adele with Skyfall from the same film in 2012. And this one, Tong, I mean, won the Oscar for Best Song. It was, according to you know music experts, one of the best Bond tracks in recent years. Uh, it's epic, dark and moody. Shall we have a listen? It's a it's a big belting ballad, isn't it, from Adele? Are you a fan, Fernando, of that one? I, I am a fan. It's not my favourite. I think it's quite a safe choice as well. But I think Skyfall. I think it matches very well with Skyfall because Skyfall was the most profitable Bond as well, more than a billion dollars at the box office. So of course, they have to hire Adele, which is kind of the best-selling artist of the moment. Everything she releases, it becomes gold. In a way, very nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying this to. It's great. You know, I know you're very. You need to do some scripting for some <laughs> of these movies. Uh, number four, we are rolling the clock back. Oh, what? Four, three and a half decades, something of that order? Kind of, 1981. Uh, this one, and it's an interesting choice, uh, Tom, because this a film, For Your Eyes Only, was this, the follow-up of Moonraker, which a lot of people hated Moonraker because Bond went to space and was getting a bit too much. It was so pretty ridiculous. It was pretty ridiculous, yeah. I mean, I quite enjoyed that film, but For Your Eyes Only is a more subdued, so they decided to choose a more seductive track as well. Very kind of, uh, you know, very sexual, but in a very lightweight. Sheena Easton with For Your Eyes Only and after we play this clip I'll tell you what's different about that track as well. Let's have a listen. Sheena Easton there and Good listeners track. can I just reassure them you did say you consider that to be lightly sexual yeah is it only lightly only lightly not yeah. heavily sexual not heavily sexual it's, it's too early in the day for that exactly, kind of exactly. Uh, but, Sheena do you like this one I like this one and I think Sheena I think the producers liked her looks as well she's the, one of the few artists that is actually singing in the opening sequence in the cinema so you know that's her face you see at the opening sequence which again is quite mellow and I think Roger Moore kind of is flying this kind of what, kind of ocean in a way it's very confusing but anyway <laughs> it, it, she's one of the few that is actually in the film uh, itself as well. Good song. A good, a good, nice track. By right, Shima. we're we're at the middle of the charts now. Fernando, can I slightly jump the gun on what is at of number course. three by telling you that this is potentially just on background my favourite Bond film of them all. Amazing. So very interesting pick, Tom. Very good one. It's controversial. I know it's controversial. It, it, is, it is a bit controversial because Live and Let Die, actually, from what I've been reading, I, I believe that was the first Roger Moore uh, film I, as I well. I think so. And 
it was not kind of this kind of rich villain. It was quite, uh, it talked about drug trafficking and it was in the middle of the black exploitation era. So it's quite interesting, quite a diverse, uh, the first African-American Bond girl as well. And the track, do you like the track as well? You, I, you, you told me you like the film. but Well, context is everything. Mm. I like the track for the movie. Regular listeners may know of my sort of antipathy towards uh, the the lead singer. This is in one of his even worse iterations, in my view. Um, but tell us what it is, Fernando. Let's have a listen. And number three, we have Paul McCartney and Wings with Live and Let Die. Say live and let die. Oh, that is an absolute it's, stone cold classic. It's, it's a been great a while. Tune, yeah. And I agree with you about Paul McCartney, but this one I have to say I really, really like that it. That is a zinger. I love it. And number two, Tom, I know you like kind of those little stats. Uh, because I'm gonna say number two is Carly Simon for Nobody Does It Better. But of course the title is Nobody Does It Better. I mean there's no bone film called like that. And there's only a couple, I think, of tracks very, where this where this holds true. Very few. I think uh, before the, the film is from nineteen seventy seven. Before that, only I think Doctor No had a track that was not the title of the film. It's from The Spy Who Loved Me. But in this track, she does mention the the word the spy who loved me. So I mean it's not, you know, that They're covering the bases. I, but I like these little kind of standouts, these outlier tracks. I mean, Carly Simon bit of a legend. Nobody does it better. Does it tick the boxes for you, Fernando, before we hear it? Very much so. I love a good power ballad. And Carly Simon, I, mean, I think she's a very respected artist. Amazing classic songs as well. And the film is pretty good, actually. The Spy Who Loved Me got, uh, I think, on Rotten Tomatoes, 80%, which is very good for a Bond film. I'm slightly surprised by that, to be honest. Exactly. So let's have a listen. I mean, the wonderful Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better. So how many of these have Roger Moore in it? To be honest, most of them. I mean, he really... Oh, that's controversial he, as well, it's isn't contro- it? But I quite like Roger Where Moore. Where does he stand in the Bond actor pantheon for you? You, you know what? I think he's one of my favourites because, okay. I mean, my kind of Bond experience started with him. Not with Sean Corner, not with Pierce Brosnan. The first films I watched were Roger Moore. And I quite like that he's kind of funny and camp in a way, which that's what well, I associate... They were more fun. Exactly. And, and apparently, I don't know if this is correct or apocryphal, but... Uh, Ian Fleming wanted Roger Moore from the from the get go. Is that true? Anyone behind? And, uh, Nobody knows. Actually, Nobody knows. I, 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 I think that is true. I have a question. Don't you think Roger Moore is a blonde guy? Right. I mean, why people say that Daniel Craig was the first blonde? Uh, well, he's kind it, of slightly darker. Nutty, yeah. yeah. A bit controversial, but anyway, I was I was just wondering bit about that. Bit of a that. legend. Bit of a legend. Uh, Roger Moore. Right. Now we've had Carly, classic singers, Carly Simon. People maybe better known for other things, but indisputably great songwriters. Paul McCartney. We've had Adele from the contemporary canon. Our listeners will be thinking, <laughs> what can be at number one? And they probably fall into a trap of thinking it's one of the old favourites, but they'd be wrong. They will be wrong. And this is actually a controversial number one, I have to say. I love it, but I know there are people that hate it. In fact, there are a lot of people, Bond fans, that don't like this film at all. Actually, it was panned by the critics, but it was... 
incredibly successful commercially. And I mean, just look at the band they chose, Duran Duran, at, at their peak, kind of new wave. And okay, the track is a bit silly, but I like it. You know, I like a little bit, a bit silly. And I do like A View to a Kill as a film as well. Um, you know, the critics will might, might disagree with me, but I don't care. Uh, I think we should listen to it. This is Duran Duran. We're right slap bang in the middle of the haze of the 80s. Let's take a listen. Amazing. And and the film do you remember Christopher Walken, Grace Jones? It was there was some fun elements. There were some in iconic the film. moments. Yeah. And maybe not in a good way. I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the only number one Bond song in the US as well, I have to say. Funnily enough, not number one here in the UK. It was three weeks and number two just behind Paul Hart Castle 19, the very ah, iconic track. Yeah. So just a little trivia. God, there was a lot of synth happening. And exactly. I feel obligated to point out, as this has been written into the very script, the fabric of today's programme, that our producer, Rhys James, wants it known to all and sundry that he's appalled that Shirley Bassey, well, I don't know why, what is his tie to Shirley Bassey? Could it be something to do with nationhood? I don't know. Uh, neither Diamonds Are Forever nor Goldfinger make the top five. He's outraged. Are you outraged, Fernando? Mildly outraged. I mean, but, 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 but I have to say, I mean, she has, I mean, she's amazing, Shirley Bassey. Just, but, we you know, we have to stick to the facts. I mean, Diamonds Are Forever only charted like number 38, actually. So, you know, it's, it looks beautiful in the film, but perhaps people are not actually listening. Even Madonna's not here. You know that I'm a big Madonna fan. I cannot believe you didn't concoct a top yes. five Bond themes that in some way had Madonna featuring. She's not there, but she's amazing. Even Sam Smith is not here as well. So mm. kind of a lot of big names. Louis Armstrong. My God, there's so much. Maybe I have to do a second one. A Bond number I'm two. just hearing the audience definitely do not want <laughs> yeah. to have a second one. For and another big celebration came this week with the return of our series, The Big Interview. To kick off the 13th season, we'll bring something magically different with the composer Benjamin Zander. Having spent half his life conducting the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, Benjamin Zander has received critical praise and three Grammy nominations. Now 82, he's showing no signs of slowing down. During lockdown, he kept the fires of live performance burning with regular concerts on his driveway. Benjamin Zander spoke to Monaco's Emma Nelson from his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, about his career and why he believes classical music is for everybody. What was the last piece of music you listened to or played and why? Well, I'm deciding on what to do with my youth orchestra next season. We're going to Russia on tour and we're going to be giving concerts all over Russia. So the question is, should we bring Shostakovich fifth? Which is a piece of immense power and depth and deeply moving. Or should we bring Scheherazade of Rimsky-Korsakov? Which is a brilliant showpiece full of colour and virtuosity and charm and storytelling and so on. So I've been listening to both those pieces and I constantly focus on... The works that I'm about to play, we're about to do Bruckner's Eighth Symphony with my Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Mm-hmm. 
That's the opening of our season, a very unusual way of opening a season. Usually you try to open the season with something flashy and familiar, but we've all been through a very traumatic experience in the world. And rather than just simply play something famous that everybody knows, you know, everybody knows that with the glorious team. Put everybody in a good mood with uh, energy and vitality. Beethoven is always good for that. What we're doing is something much more challenging. We're doing Bruckner's Eighth Symphony. I'm sure no other conductor in the world would dream of doing such a foolish thing, but it's a beautiful, deeply spiritual, uplifting, moving and out-of-body experience to listen to Bruckner in a great concert hall. So I'm taking a risk. It's an 87-minute piece of music, challenging in every way, but deeply uplifting and satisfying. And so I know that by the end of it, like when you climb a very high mountain, the view is glorious. The composer Benjamin Zander there in conversation with our Emma Nelson for this week's big interview. Next, it's time to turn our attention to the automobile industry. Few brands boast such an impressive brand story as Daimler-Benz, the German automotive company, being at the forefront of the industry since its inception in 1926. To find out more about the company's future and its ambitious sustainability plans, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, traveled to the business Stuttgart HQ to meet Ola Kalinius, who leads both Daimler and Mercedes-Benz. The car has truly been the machine that has changed the world. We have now gotten used to that you have self-determined individual freedom anywhere. You can go anywhere whenever you like it. But it is incredible. You talk about this emancipation, the freedom, and, and yet we're in the situation where the, the car seems to be so often the devil. I think actually most people, if you take away this individual choice and individual freedom, they would immediately realize that they would want to have it back. So I strongly, strongly believe that in mobility of the future, people are not going to move less, they're going to move more. So I don't think we have an option where we say, let's abolish mobility. And on the transport side, I mean, we're the biggest truck and bus maker in the world on the transport side. The whole basis for an economy is based upon transport. But there has been a side effect, and we cannot neglect the side effect, and the side effect has been CO2. So yes, you could legitimately say you have this freedom, but at a cost. So what's the transformation about? That cost needs to go away. We need to engineer the side effect out of the invention. But I think another thing that people are thinking about, what about the traffic situation? Up until now, when the cars have been, you know, individual little islands doing their thing, and the uh, the only computer that is thinking about what the machine should do is is the human computer of the brain, uh, in a world of everything being connected with everything else, and we are on our way there. It will mean that every single other car kind of knows what all the other things on the road are doing. We will have smarter traffic in the future, and we can then avoid through intelligence, crowd intelligence, artificial intelligence, uh, unnecessary traffic jams. So I think the experience could not only be clean, zero emission, it could also be more enjoyable. 
And even now in some circumstances, and I, I drove recently, we're about to certify the first true level three system for kind of a highway traffic pilot, a traffic jam type of pilot. When you can actually push a button and in some circumstances now the computer takes over it actually actually drives you're not responsible in that situation then you get the greatest gift of all you're given time back that you can do whatever you please with it maybe you want to relax a little bit maybe you want to check your message maybe you want to read monocle yeah so it's about to get even better and as a technology optimist, I strongly believe this is uh, even 135 years in the making, a very, very attractive growth business going into the future. Now, is that about giving time back or is it also about more abdication from from risk as well? So I'm not just talking about the traffic situation, but just this ongoing sort of de-risking that we have of of society that in a way I'm not responsible for for anything anymore is that a place to move to not and I say this I was having a discussion with your colleague on the way in saying you know increasingly we sort of switch our switch our brains off uh, a little bit and I was in Greece a few weeks ago was driving a very small vehicle made by a, a Czech auto brand and it was just a stick shift it was brand new it did nothing there was like no knobs dials or anything but it was driving and it was really exciting, <laughs> oddly. And are we going to see, are, are we going to be able to have this world where we can, or, or do you see a sector as well, which is not just about putting your feet up and hopefully reading monocle in the back of, or even the front seat of your car, but also a place that we can really drive still. I mean, and that's not just down to you. That's also down to the authorities as well. I also enjoy driving. I think we're going to have both, but there are maybe some situations maybe when you don't want to drive. Let's say you've had a really long, stressful day in the office. Uh, and if I think a few years into the future uh, and I drive home, my drive home is depending on if I'm in this office or where we have our engineering quarters, maybe it's a 15, 20, half, half an hour drive. At the end of such a long day, if I, if I could push a button and just say, home, please, uh, that's enjoyable too. <laughs> But in terms of risk, um, uh, the technology is in and around driving assistance and autonomous drives. It's also about saving lives. You're not a traffic authority. It's going to take us a while to get there. But I would imagine either this means getting all of the old stupid vehicles off the road, though, or, or will we be able to have a hybrid world where I can still drive my Czech branded car that does nothing? It doesn't talk to anyone. It's not even interested in it. And I can have the newest lineup from from you or, or any other makers. I, I'm very realistic about this. I think we're going to have to have coexistence. Because if you would say, let's make a cutoff date. We'll take uh, the 1st of January 2030. Let's get rid of all the old cars. And we are only allowed to do new cars. It would be uh, as if the state confiscated your personal property. I don't think it would go down well with many people, irrespective of the fact that uh, many people would not be able to afford that to then buy a new car and so on. So realistically, we're going to have to have coexistence. What does that mean? That vehicles that become more and more autonomous, they have their computer brain, they have their artificial intelligence, they have all the sensor set, which is the eyes and the ears of the car. And ultimately, those computer-driven cars will be more alert and more aware than any human driver, which means they will also be able to react to erratic behavior from a human driver. So the only realistic scenario here is coexistence, but over time, 
there will be more and more smart vehicles and gradually the older vehicles will be retired. That was Ola Kalinius in conversation with Tyler Brulé. To hear the interview in full, listen to this week's episode of The Chiefs. Staying with brands hoping for a sustainable future now as we next head to the London Design Festival and a new flagship outdoor show aimed to reconnect people and spaces with nature. Planted is a showcase whose lineup of brands place nature and sustainability at their core. Monaco's Nick Moniz visited King's Cross to meet Deborah Spencer, the event's founder, and he sent us this report. So Planted is about showcasing brands today which improve our tomorrow. And it really came out of the events industry and looking at how much waste used to be created. For many years, I launched and ran a show called Design Junction, which was a big interior design show. But it used to produce waste on an epic scale and there were no consequences. And so it got us thinking there's got to be a more sustainable way of producing events in the future. So Planted is about showcasing brands that place nature and sustainability at the core of their business. We're in King's Cross, sort of in the heart of, of you know, central London. Well, I do the show uh, in a public space where people can sort of walk through it and it's not ticketed. King's Cross is a really special urban regeneration site and I think what they've done really well is they've worked with some of the top landscape architects uh, and garden designers like Dan Pearson to actually bring nature back into the city. As a city centre space, these public realm areas for people to enjoy they want to kind of create like a mini oasis so you'll see like you know we're right by the canal we've got planting schemes along the steps trees on granary square fountains and you know they're all about bringing nature here so for us it's just the perfect partnership in terms of the brands that that you're showcasing is that also embodied in their work Is, is there some sort of link i guess between bringing the outside into our homes what's the connection there The show is built on the principles of biophilic design, which is really tapping into man's innate need to connect with the natural environment. And actually, by connecting with nature, you feel more productive, creative, your concentration increases. So all of these brands are actually thinking about biophilia, love of nature. So there are brands like Benchmark. Their whole collection is designed around wellness, It's designed around increasing productivity. It's designed around the materials they use, all natural materials. They've got non-toxic chemicals in any of their products. So every single brand is considering the environment here. And a lot of them are British, some are international. We hope, and actually by the end of the show, people will understand what biophilic design means. Because there's a lot of people that I've spoken to who've said, actually, I don't really understand what the terminology is. So we want people to kind of come here, learn. We're doing a talks programme which is going to focus on what is biophilic design, our toxic cities, why rewild, and actually like how we can increase biodiversity in cities. Um, we're also going to be looking at can food save the world? So there's an educational part to the show. There is um, an inspirational part to the show and post-event we're going to kind of continue that conversation and over the last year we obviously haven't been able to put on a full-scale show so we've been talking a lot around how food, design, architecture, nature can combine to create cleaner, greener, healthier spaces. My name's Oliver Heath, I'm an architectural interior designer and biophilic design ambassador for the Planted Exhibition. 
biophilia means uh, it relates a human's innate attraction to nature and natural processes. It kind of explains why when we go on holiday we choose to go to the beach and the mountains and the forests and get away from the cities and when we're in those spaces we kind of refind ourselves and the stress washes away. So biophilic design essentially are a set of design patterns or principles that allow us to bring that sense of nature into the built environment, the place where we experience loads of stress and helps us getting back to being at our best. So it's in part about, you know, contact with real nature like plants and trees and natural light, natural materials and colours and textures, but it's also about the spaces we surround ourselves in and how they make us excited and stimulated, which we kind of need if we're going to work and focus, but also calm, relaxed and recuperative. Can we run through a few examples that we sort of got in front of us? And this is a cabin designed specifically for the show. So it's a basically a timber-clad cabin, beautiful big windows. There's a sort of little deck outside. You can sit out and drink your coffee out in the morning. Inside, there's a, a beautiful natural bed. There's a little wood-burning stove. You can sit in there, look out onto nature. Also, it's, you know, nature floods in through the light and the windows. In a way, a lot of what we're talking about in biophilic design is encapsulated by the idea of this cabin. So the point is that you can take this cabin, you can put it down in nature, and it's a space where people can come to immerse themselves in that rich, multi-sensory form of, of nature and, and just feel the stress wash away. The idea about this is sleeping in nature encourages you to be outside, encourages you to put your phone and your tablet down, connect with that rather than your Wi-Fi, and soak up all the many benefits that come from it. Now, one of the interesting things about biophilic design is it's based on evidence and research. And what the research tells us from environmental psychology studies over the last 30 years is that when we connect with nature, it can bring all sorts of benefits to buildings. You know, it can help children learn more quickly and get better test results in school. Uh, patients in hospitals can recuperate 8.5% faster, take 22% less medication. Uh, in workplaces, people will be 6% more, more productive. You know, it goes on and on. The benefits of bringing nature into buildings and people's lives is so important if we're going to create a stronger, healthier, more resilient path to the future of the built environment, to face the challenges that we face with the climate crisis. Monaco's Nick Moniz there in conversation with Deborah Spencer, founder of Planted. Still to come here on The Curator, we head to Finland for a harvest festival. We hear about the app hoping to take the hassle out of splitting the bill. And we tuck into a recipe from one of the pioneers of Malaysian cooking in London. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are with The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Splitting the bill when eating out can mark the low point of a meal out for many of us, something which has long been a source of frustration for restaurants too. It's part of the reason why Victor Luger and Tigran Seydou launched Sunday earlier this year. The platform allows friends to split the bill within seconds and also means you don't have to flag down your waiter in an attempt to pay. 
Luger and Seydu are also the co-founders of the Big Mama Restaurant Group and say the platform is boosting sales and tips at the more than 1,500 restaurants they've signed up so far in five countries. Monaco's Daniel Bates spoke to Luger for this week's episode of The Entrepreneurs, following Sunday's announcement of a $100 million Series A investment round. What I think it says is that when we launched the company five months ago, we had this intuition or a little more than an intuition that very soon no one would be using a credit card machine, raising one's arm, waiting for five minutes, then asking for the bill, then do it again to get the credit card machine, then split the bill, etc. And all that process taking 15 minutes of our lives just to pay in restaurants. Because remember, 10 years ago, we used to do the same to order a cab. And we used to do the same and go shopping where now we can get it delivered home, etc., etc. And paying in restaurants is still one of these very painful stuff that we keep doing that technology hasn't solved. We had this intuition five months ago that Sunday would solve this. And now we are in September. And five months later, we have 1,500 restaurants who've signed up to it. More than a million people have paid with Sunday. And what was an intuition is now literally becoming a wildfire that we simply cannot stop. And the reason why we've raised so much money now is to try and answer for all the demand that we have. We are now live in the US, in the UK, Spain, and France. That money will be used to go into more territories where we have so much demand and also to improve our products so as to be able to connect not to only 25 POS, which are the, the cashier system of the restaurants, but to more than 100 and as we're building the fastest way to pay in restaurants, to make everything we do even faster and even simpler, so that literally when you want to pay at the restaurant, instead of doing that whole ask the bill, ask the credit card machine, etc., ask a receipt process, you just scan the QR code. The next thing you see on your phone is your bill. You scroll down, split the bill if you want, add a tip, click pay, boom, you're done. Seven seconds. Talk to me a little bit about what the impact has been. You mentioned there that more than a million people have used this to pay their bill at a restaurant already in the, in the different markets that you're already in, which is incredible. But what is the actual impact for the bottom line and for the servers as well? Has this shifted the way people are paying, people are spending? It has massively changed how we operate restaurants. From a guest perspective, it doesn't change anything, only that you have more face time with your waiter who's there to attend you better, to explain the menu, the products, and to counsel you and to nurture you rather than spend time printing bills and carrying credit card machines. Let's go into facts. The intuition we had and figures now that we've rolled it out into so many restaurants are way above expectations is that the average table lasts 15 minutes less, which is you increase by 12% on average your top line by more table rotation. Two, you have an increased average spent. Why? Because people get better advice from their waiter. Why? Because the waiter have more time on his hand. Two, because they have time for a coffee and dessert. On average, out of several hundred thousands of tables, it's 12% increase in average spent. But that is not the most important. I think now, in times of COVID and post-pandemic period, where everyone from the US to UK, from France to Spain, everyone is struggling to A, recruit, and B, motivate and retain staff. We have increased tips in the UK by a thousand percent. So let me just break it down. In a restaurant like Gloria, 
we went over the service charge from £30 a week to £3,000 a week of tips. Just imagine these figures and what it means for waiters, for front of house staff that are struggling, that have been on furlough for the last 18 months. It is massive. I know so many restaurateurs from Corbin King to us at Big Mama to Smokestack to JKS, etc. Using this is helping massively manage the staff crisis and retain the staff. As my wife says, there is a double effect here. The first effect is that practically staff can concentrate on what they love to do. I am not a tech entrepreneur. I'm a restaurateur giving that product to the world. As a restaurateur, my obsession is that my staff will be passionate. And if my staff can use one's time to better attend guests rather than to run around berserkly trying to find a bill and print a bill and, oh, by job, where is the credit card machine? then my staff is way more happy. Everyone in our industry, in the restaurant industry, is driven by passion. And no one's passionate about printing a bill or splitting credit cards into a credit card machine. That's the first. The second thing is, well, we get way more money for that because tips are a massive part of our revenue as restaurants. And why are tips increasing? There are two huge reasons for that. The first is, well, you're getting better service, so you're more happy to tip. Why is that? Because we're saving to the front of house staff between 30 and 50% of their time with Sunday. I mean, if I had 30 to 50% more time in a day, I would definitely do a better job. The second reason is that how many times have you been willing to leave a tip and you don't have cash in your pocket and you ask if you can leave tips on the credit card machine and they say, oh no, that, that's not working, you know, because it goes to the restaurant or it's not allowed. And eventually you don't leave a tip. Well, right now you just click on your phone, boom, tip's done. Very, very interesting. And you said it there, the fact that you're not a tech entrepreneur, you are a restaurateur. And I know you and your business partner, Tigran, as men that are more interested in the full experience and this experience of the people that work for you as well, which is fascinating, the people that you bring into the business, that you train, that you help them build their careers and build their lives working in your establishments. Just walk back a little bit for me and talk to me about the conversations between you and Tigran about changing this, about making this platform. Because I said to you off air, I would expect this to come from a bank or some sort of mobile platform developer, but there are restaurateurs behind it. Very practically, the moment where we decided that we would be doing Sunday is when we realized it's not just a pure fintech where we are processing money. What we're trying to do and the success we've had in the last six months is making it so exciting is that what we're trying to do is the world is literally changing at an unheard speed towards a new usage. Remember 10 years ago when we started ordering cabs on our phone, it took like 10 years for so many companies to have changed this market. Right now, because of the pandemic, the status of a QR code has gone from 1% of the population knows what it is to 99% of the population knows what it is. And what was something absolutely impossible 18 months ago, which is pay with your phone in a restaurant, has become absolutely obvious for anyone in the Western world. And anyone, I'm not talking just about Gen Z clients and Gen Z guests in big cities. I'm talking about small restaurants we have in Scotland, in the Midlands, in the south of Spain, in the Pyrenees, in France. 
you put these QR codes on the table and everyone starts paying with them. And what I find exciting as a restauranter is that we are making people's life easier. We're giving back 15 minutes of their day to hundreds, tomorrow to hundreds of millions of people. That I find fascinating. That I find is a real strong purpose for our company. That is the purpose and the mission that I believe has helped us on board over 170 people in less than five months. And all of that is very coherent with what we're doing in our restaurants, in Big Mama, in the Big Mama group, where practically we're not just cooking food and feeding people. We're trying to give them the best time of their day. And here we're just trying to make a very small, simple feature, tech as its best, which is give back 15 minutes of their day to so many people. I find it humbling, I find it fascinating, and I find it very exciting, to be honest. Victor Luger there, co-founder of the Sunday app and the Big Mama restaurant group, speaking to Monaco's Daniel Bates. You can hear the full interview on the latest episode of The Entrepreneurs. And we stay in the culinary world now for our next highlight. For this week's edition of Food Neighborhoods, we tuck into a favorite recipe from one of the pioneers of Malaysian cooking here in London. My name is Mandy Yin. I run Sambal Shiok Laksabar in Highbury in North London. My cookbook is Sambal Shiok, the Malaysian cookbook. And I'm going to talk to you about one of my favourite recipes from the book, which is Nasi Goreng Kampung, which is village fried rice. And that essentially is fried rice, everyone's favourite, but with dried anchovies. Or if you don't have dried anchovies, then you can use the tinned kind, which is absolutely fine. Fried rice, as most people are aware, is a fantastic way to use leftover rice. So make sure it's reheated so that it's piping hot. Fried rice is a stir fry essentially, so you need to have all your ingredients ready to go. So for example, a couple of cloves of chopped garlic, a few spring onions, finely chopped, maybe some chilies, and have a wok or a large frying pan on high heat, touch of oil, fry off your aromats very quickly, and then go in with your dried anchovies or your tinned anchovies. So for maybe 400 grams of rice to serve two people, you only need maybe two fillets of tinned anchovies or two tablespoons of dried anchovies. And don't be afraid of these anchovies. They do break down and they give this beautiful umami background flavor to the fried rice, which is very, very unique. So you fried all those aromats and the anchovies off, Add in the rice with a touch of soy sauce, maybe some oyster sauce and some sambal chili sauce if you have that hanging around. Stir fry it for three to five minutes, depending on how crispy you like your rice. If you want to, you can add an egg whilst frying the rice or a fried egg on the side and serve. Job done. Mandy Yin, the Malaysian chef owner of the Sambal Shiok Laksabar, for this week's episode of Food Neighborhoods. This week we not only saw the return of our series The Big Interview, but a new episode of Confet Corner 2, with the latest edition themed around autumn and harvest. Nestled between Finland and Sweden, and surrounded by the Baltic Sea, the inhabitants of the autonomous island islands have relied on subsistence farming and fishing for centuries, growing just what they need without surplus for trade. Life this far up north follows the natural rhythm of the region's four very distinct seasons. Each year the islanders celebrate the end of the summer season with a traditional harvest festival, Skirt of Festen. Farms open their doors and welcome visitors from near and far, with the farmers and fishermen touting their fresh produce. We sent our reporter Petri Bertsov to the islands to find out more. 
the Bolstaholma Gord in the Yeta region of the main island, the atmosphere is festive on a sunny autumn's day. Some kids jump around haystacks, others race around a makeshift truck made for paddle tractors. A dozen or so cows munch on hay and pose for the passers-by. The farm's chicken and roosters are on display too, as are a flock of the island's sheep, an indigenous breed producing some of the finest quality wool in the world. There are musical performances too, and lots of food to boot, all local, of course. Homemade ciders and lemonades exchange hands, large onions and potatoes are bulging from hemp tote bags. The roots of this farm reach all the way back to the age of the Vikings, with Anne Sundberg and her husband Hendrik as its current caretakers. The main reason why we have this harvest festival so is that the consumer have this opportunity to meet the producer and buy uh, products from the producer and uh, talk to the producer and so on. This uh, connection is very, very important. And uh, all people are very interesting and know, I should say they know uh, the important thing to buy local food. So, and what kind of local produce can we find on Åland? Even that it's a small area, Åland, we have uh, quite a lot of uh, local products like uh, apple meat, fish, cheese, bread. What kind of cheese? This sounds interesting. Mattas Gårdsmejeri in Sund. They produce their own uh, products like uh, local fetaost, for example. Oh, it's very nice. Feta cheese, feta yes, cheese. And, and also a local halloumi. <laughs> yeah, they call it fry cheese. Bolsa Homes is one of the dozens of open farms during the Harvest Festival. It attracts up to 10,000 visitors a day during the three-day festival. A staggering number given Orland's population of just 30,000. Yes, it is. We try to have something for everybody, for the whole family. We have art exhibitions for parents <laughs> or older elder people. And we have uh, different kinds of foods. We have homemade burgers. And we have all from uh, meat burgers to uh, vegan also. And uh, then we have a lot of different uh, local seller. Uh, they sell uh, their own products like apples to onions to handicraft, arts, a lot of things. Open Water Brewery, a local microbrewery in the southwestern region of Limland, offers another take on the Harvest Festival. There are no farm animals or wayward children jumping around in haystacks. Instead, locals in their 20s and 30s are sampling artisanal beers and eating street food prepared in on-site food trucks. Young islanders are keen to leave their mark on the traditional festival and have decided to do it their way. I meet Mikaela, who runs one of the food trucks together with her business partner, Jack. I run this business, Waffelrakan. It's a food truck and we are here today and we are selling Waffelraken. It's like a potato waffle that's made of raw potatoes and that you do in a waffle iron. And we serve with cream fray and onions and top it with fish roe and salt and pepper. 
Oh, that sounds really tasty. Is it locally produced ingredients that you are using? Uh, yes, uh, the potato is actually from... Uh, my boyfriend is a farmer, so he is having the potato and onions. We would like to do it like in a modern way, like it's the food truck, it's more, you know, modern and... Uh, but the food is very um, original, it's like råraka and that's a very classical dish here in the north, but we do it in a modern way. A lot of the local youth, um, they were born on the island, they moved to study and work somewhere else, but I'm seeing a lot of young people here at the festival, what's the story behind that? It's like fantastic because everyone that's not here, like they are studying or moving someone else, somewhere else and working, they always come home to this weekend because everyone wants to enjoy the Harvest Festival. It's like we must go there. So everyone's coming home and stay at their families and go out like Friday, Saturday and Sunday and eat. So it's very important for the young people. What happens in the evenings? Are there any Sjördefest parties happening? <laughs> yeah, uh, someone's having like from, they're going on the Harvest Festival and pick up uh, foods and drinks and they then on the evening they gather around and like make the food and serve and drink and having a little small harvest party. <laughs> Later in the evening I meet Mats Löfström, who represents the autonomous region of Åland in Finland's parliament. He explains to me what the festival means to the islanders and what agriculture means for the island's culture and identity. Well, the Horus Festival is probably the best event of the whole autumn when we are bringing out the potatoes, the onions, the apples are ready for harvesting and uh, bringing all together a feast for good food and uh, seeing all the farms open. Everyone, I mean, going in... Italy or France or in Greece, uh, you see how proud people are for their farms and for their products. And we don't have the same tradition in the Nordics, I think, but it starts to develop and the Harvest Festival is the main event for that. A small island of 30,000 inhabitants have its own diary where we can have fresh milk, ice cream, cream, really good cheeses. Uh, We have uh, a butchery where we have both uh, lambs and cattle Uh, So we have some really good meat uh, here, also locally produced, never leaving uh, the islands. And I mean, if you look on Sweden and uh, Finland, for example, this has been centralized. There are only, I mean, some big, really big producers where uh, the animals are transported for, I mean, not that long distances, but still it's uh, not so local as it was in the past. Here everything is still local and uh, everyone knows that in order to, uh, to, uh, to have that also in the future you need to buy those products because otherwise those uh, industries or the farms cannot exist. Löfström explains how the Harvest Festival has helped the locals discover what their fellow islanders have done with the local produce and thus inspired young people to engage in agriculture too. People see that, oh, those are doing fantastic thing with lamb, lamb meat. Okay, maybe we should do something with cattle. Maybe we should start a small diary with nine cows only doing some really good halloumi cheese, uh, some ice cream with nine cows. And it's super, super local and people are doing it. And it's young people who does it. And that's really fantastic. And it's important for the countryside. As the day draws to a close, I take time to digest everything that I've seen and experienced during the day. 
I reflect on my own experiences of growing up in a small agrarian village in Finland and my current life in a bigger city, far removed from the origins of the food I eat and the community that grew it. Harvest festivals such as Åland's Skjødefesten play a key role in fostering a sense of community among the locals by marking a shared experience that the changing of the season ultimately is. They also connect people with the origins of the food they eat and the community that grew it. Thus they help cultivate a more nuanced appreciation for local produce, one that goes beyond seeing food for its nutritional value alone, teaching people instead that buying local produce helps keep the countryside alive and vibrant. For Confect in the Åland Islands, I'm Petri Burtsov. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>